Again to Lorraine and Debbie uh, for reading a lot of names to us. <laughs> Rather you than us, we all thought to ourselves as you, as, you, as you read that. No, thank you. Very well done. And actually, when we come to a passage like this, which, where we're confronted with a list of names, our sort of default knee-jerk reaction is to kind of switch off and think, apart from the possibility of deciding on a future baby name of your son, daughter, or grandson, I mean, it would be great. I was having a conversation with someone this morning about how there are a lot of Sues in our church and Daves and Davids, and if we could just have one or two Priscillas or Andronicuses, or, you know, that would just help to ease the confusion, I think. And so that's certainly worth considering, but a passage like this, I think we'll all agree, is not, is not here simply to provide us with name ideas. Um, however, a, a list of names like this does show us quite a lot about what the church was like, and what Paul says to this list of names shows us quite a lot about what he prizes. Now, we're going to cover the whole of chapter 16, so I'm not going to go through the names in any great detail. But what I will say is that if you would like to, actually, there's quite a lot of fruit to be had there, um, a surprising amount. These sort of lists of names, whether Old Testament or New Testament, are never there for trivial purposes. As somebody once told me, papyrus wasn't cheap, and so they didn't waste their words when they wrote on papyrus. And so if these names are in here, they are in here for an important reason. We're going to think a, little, a, a bit about that. We've come to the end of our time in Romans together. And we've seen that what Paul has been wanting for the church at Rome is for them to be a strong church, a strong and mature church to the glory of God, shaped by his grace and mercy. But also he needs them to be strong and to be united and mature because he intends to use them as his base for missions further afield, for missions into Spain. He needs them to be strong so that they're in a position to support him and pray for him and send him and provision him as he goes off into Spain. We saw that last week. And so as he wraps up the end of this letter, it's not just sort of the greeting but that you kind of have to do at the end. Paul is intentionally trying to conclude what he's been doing all the way through the letter. Paul needs a strong, mature church so that the mission of the gospel of God can go forward, so that the nations would come to the obedience of faith. That's what Paul wants. That's what he, he concludes with. He, he concludes in the same place that he ends, in this, this kind of benediction at the end is very much the same as his introduction in chapter 1. We remind them, this is what I am after, to bring to you my gospel, the only gospel, the apostolic gospel, not a false version of the gospel that may be bouncing around, but this gospel, because only this gospel is able to establish you, only this gospel is able to equip you, and only this gospel is able to save you. And it's this gospel that must reach the ends of the earth so that all the nations would be brought to the obedience of faith. This is Paul's intention. And so what does Paul want from the Romans? What does he envisage for them as a strong and mature church? 
Here are a few things. As we look at this list of names, first of all, we see one, there are several things going on here. But the main thing, I think, is this. That Paul sees a church that celebrates its diversity. Paul sees a church that celebrates its diversity. A strong church, a mature church, is not a church that shies away from diversity, but embraces it as part of being a gospel community. I remember once being part of a, a Christianity ex Explored group, and I remember thinking to myself as I looked around this group of such a variety of people, blue collar, white collar, young, old, male, female, different ethnicities and nationalities. I've been in small groups and Bible studies, a very similar thing. We just, there would be no other reason for a group as diverse as that ever to be together willingly in the same small group and be excited to be there. It's incredible how what the gospel does is breaks down barriers of diversity, uh, breaks down the barriers between different types of people and draws them in and unites them in this one faith. So as you read through this list of names, um, I won't go through them all in detail now, but you'll see a variety of things. You'll see male names, female names, both men and women in the service of the gospel. Paul is commending all of these people because they are in the Lord and because they are at work serving and supporting the Lord and supporting uh, this gospel work. That's what he commends them for. And he's commending men and women. There are women and men who are very involved in the highest ranks of what is going on in God's work and in the ministry of the gospel. There are Jews and Gentiles in this list. There are those who are of Jewish ethnicity and there is those who are of Greek or Roman ethnicity. And Paul is commending and welcoming them all. There are those who are rich, those who have status in society, and those who are slaves. So whenever you see greet those in the household of, it's likely a reference to those who are slaves of or servants of somebody's household. But Paul greets them the same as he greets those who occupy important roles within the city, prestigious roles within the city. Men, woman, Jew, Gentile, wealthy, poor, different class systems. Paul accepts them all and greets them all. It tells you a couple of things. First of all, the Roman church was very diverse. There was a lot going on there. But the second thing that it shows us is Paul is here, I think, modeling what he's been saying all along. He's been saying accept one another. He's been saying love one another. He's been saying be gracious to one another. Care for one another. As Christ accepted you. And here he is showing that his greetings go out not just to the Jews or just to the Gentiles, not just to the men or just to the women, not just to the rich or just to the poor, but his greetings go out to all. He is accepting and welcoming and commending all of them. Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. And he is commending them for their work in the gospel and their place in the church because they are in Christ. So the first thing that we see here as we look at this 
conclusion of, of Paul's letter to the Romans is that Paul is encouraging a church to celebrate its diversity and accept that diversity as a good thing, as a blessing. And to celebrate that diversity and make it a blessing by being accepting of each other. Even if we are different. And we can try and do our best to do the same sorts of things, can't we? This morning, I'm going to make it awkward for everyone now uh, by saying this. I'm going to, you know, this morning, after church, we're going to have some tea and coffee together. We might want to think about talking to people who we wouldn't ordinarily talk to. People who perhaps aren't part of our families or not in the same demographic group as us. People who we don't know very well. Maybe we should introduce ourselves. Little gestures like that that can help us to show our acceptance of others. I appreciate this is going to make it very awkward at tea and coffee. You're going to kind of feel, who should I be talking to? Don't, don't, don't make it awkward. But at the same time, we can think about that. The people we spend time with during the week. The people we have over for dinner. The people we socialize with and text during the week. Are we making an effort to make that not just our own group, our own friendship group or our own family or our own people who are like us or have shared interests in us? That doesn't always work out very well, by the way. I invited some folk here to come and watch the rugby with me yesterday because I knew they also liked the rugby. And South Africa lost, and it was a very painful experience. And so I actually, you know, sometimes it's just better to branch out and not have shared interests. But little gestures that we could just think about. How could we? These are not you musts. These are not you have tos. These are, well, could we? Could we show that we are accepting of people who are not like us? who are different to us? Could we show our, our celebration of diversity in little ways like that? Ways like Paul does. A strong church, a mature church, a church that is ready to reach the nations is a church that is ready to embrace diversity. Let's face it, because the times are changing, because the culture is changing, because the church is now at odds more and more with the, surrounding, with the direction of the surrounding culture, increasingly, for people to come from out there into here, this place here, is going to require some sort of culture shock. It's going it's to necessitate that. People are going to come from very different ways of thinking, very different backgrounds, very different ethical codes, and we have to be very clear on the things that Paul's been writing about. What does the Bible actually say about something? Is this an ethical thing that is commanded by Scripture, or is, just, is this just part of my preference or culture? Uh, we have to be very clear on those sorts of things. We also have to be very clear on uh, when it is something that is worth picking up on, or something that's worth just leaving alone. We have to be very clear on what cultural things are consistent with the Christian faith and what aren't, so that we can embrace people and not exclude them for any reason um, that is not absolutely necessary. We need to be as charitable and as gracious as we possibly can. That's what Paul is saying. Obviously, only a church that is ready and positioned for that can be 
open to receiving the nations. So, a strong church is a church that celebrates diversity. The second thing is, a strong church is a church that stays away from division, that shies away from division. So there is a difference between unity and diversity and diversity and division, divisive diversity. And this is what Paul moves on to in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Paul sees another force at work. There is this joyful celebration and acceptance of the diversity of the church, but then there is another force at work, and that is the force of division. And Paul calls this satanic. He concludes by saying, don't worry, God will soon crush Satan under your feet, implying that what he is talking about here, this divisiveness, is in fact satanic. It's in fact demonic. It is evil. So he's saying there, there should be a high degree of tolerance for diversity and a low degree of tolerance for division. In fact, often we know that church discipline is a rare thing. And we often think about the explicit cases in the Bible for when church discipline, excommunication, that is when you put someone out of the fellowship what are, the, what, are, what are the reasons, what are the criteria for being able to do that acceptably? It's very important that we understand this because there are certain cults where if you just kind of slightly diverge from the status quo at all, you are shunned and the whole community is told to shun those people who just won't fall in line. But it isn't quite the same thing as what Paul is talking about here. It's not at all the same thing. But what Paul is saying is there does come a point when you have to acknowledge that there is someone in the church who is there to poison it. And it is the responsibility of the church leaders chiefly, but the whole church together with the church leaders to put that person out of the church. This is very rare and very extreme, but it does need to happen. You have an example of this in 1 Corinthians where Paul says you must put out the immoral person. This is someone who time and time again is committing the same act and will not be brought to repentance. That is very important. It's not someone who's just messing up, but is really grieved by it, is trying really hard to change. That's not the person in view here. The person in view here is a person who stubbornly will not listen to anybody else, will not be corrected, and will not repent of the gross immorality that they're continuing in. At that point, you have to say to that person, says Paul, their influence will begin to spread division in the church. It will begin to spread um, disease in the church. They must be put out. And hopefully, says Paul, the act of putting them out will wake them up, bring them to repentance, and cause them to come back in. And at that point, says Paul, receive them, welcome them, forgive them, and bring them back in. The one thing that we don't often associate, we know about false teaching, we know about immoral living, 
But the one thing that the New Testament mentions, and Paul mentions elsewhere in his writings, that is also an offense for excommunication is division. If somebody becomes a divisive person, they must be put out of the fellowship, have nothing to do with them. Or as it says here, keep away from them. Now that could come at two levels. It could come from the front. It could be someone who's proclaiming a false gospel or proclaiming a false ethic that is causing division within the church. Or it could come from the church, where it is someone who just simply will not submit to authority, will not regard the Bible, and is spreading all kinds of ideas that is, or gossip or slander that is splitting the church. And Paul says, this is a huge danger for churches to be strong and mature and ready to continue with the mission of God. And so I guess the encouragement for us here is to, first of all, do not be deceived by divisive people. Don't be drawn into division. Don't be drawn into undermining your brothers and sisters in Christ at your local church. Don't be deceived into doing that, either through false teaching or false living or just because it's someone who's very persuasive and influential. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be drawn into it. So you see um, in verse 18, such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Don't be drawn into that, says Paul. But the other thing is don't be that person. We all have to hear this. You, me, the elders, the members, the visitors, every single person has to hear this. Don't be the divisive person. Don't be the one spreading dissent and division. Don't be the one who is seeking to create little power circles and split the church. Don't be the one spreading a false gospel, which is, in this case, a gospel which is not biblical, a gospel which is not endorsed by the eldership of the church. If someone is knowingly opposing what is, um, what is the accepted position of the church in the hopes that they might draw some people away, it happens. It's happened. Don't be deceived, but don't be the deceiver. If there's one thing that could wreck a church that celebrates diversity, it's a church that is tolerant of division. Paul takes it very, very seriously, and so should we. There was um, a friend of mine who was very, very good at rugby. I apologize. Rugby is on my mind. Um, very, very good at rugby. And in fact, so good that there were cries from the media um, that this particular friend of mine should, should be brought into the, the national side. He was that good. He played super rugby, and he was outstanding. All his stats were good. He was a, a recognized uh, player. Very, very good indeed. First class. But when the coach was under pressure from the South African public and the media to include him in the national side, he said, I can't include this person in the Springbok team because he is a divisive person. He will ruin the morale of the team. I don't want him there because the team can only function, not only if they're very good, but also if they work well together. 
And so he never made it into, well, he did. He got forced to join the national side and it was a disaster and then he left. But the church can only work well, not only if we're all, it's not about our skill. It's not about our competence. It's about our love and acceptance of one another, says Paul. A love and acceptance and our desire to serve the Lord Jesus together. So we should be a church that celebrates diversity, but we should also be a church that stays away from division. Don't be the divisive person. Don't be deceived by divisive people. Paul then turns to conclude, and the conclusion is extremely important. How does a church stay diverse and yet not become divided? And Paul says there is only one way that that can happen, is if the church keeps the gospel at its center. If the church keeps the gospel at its center. I want to commend Tim for the way that he's led us in our worship today. Some of you may not know the amount of thought and effort that goes into it. Uh, Tim and I have been studying about what makes Christian worship Christian. You study the, if you look at the way that Christians have worshipped ever since the beginning, as far back as we can study these things, there's a pattern to it that sets Christians apart from non-Christians. I wonder if you know what it, what it is or are thinking of what it could be. But Tim's done it very well for us. He's exemplified very well for us this morning that there has been a particular flow to the service. It's been about acknowledging God and who he is, confessing our sins, receiving the assurance that comes from God's grace, moving on to thanksgiving, and then calling upon God in prayer into the instruction as we sit before God and, and hear from him into communion and then into commission into God's service. Can you see the flow and the structure of, of that service? It is the gospel. It's the gospel that talks about the holiness of God and our sins in the light of God's holiness and the gospel that talks about God's grace given to unworthy sinners like us that forgives us and then moves us into thanksgiving and then moves us into communing with God in, in prayer and in the word and in the Lord's Supper and then commissions us through the blessing at the end to send us out to serve him. There's a real reason why we worship the way that we worship and it is to keep the gospel central. So as we gather around the table in a moment, this is one way that God has given for us to make sure the gospel remains cent central. There is not a week that goes by where we do not remember his body given, his blood shed, where we do not proclaim his death until he comes. This is what Paul says now in verse 25. Now to him, he was able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. How is the church established? How does it stay strong and mature? In accordance with the gospel, says Paul. The gospel proclaimed by him. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. The gospel is the only thing that's able to establish us. This message of Christ and what he's done for us and the forgiveness that he brings is the only thing that can make the church strong and equip us for mission. This is where he goes on. In verse 26, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles, all the nations might come to the obedience that comes from faith. That's Paul's mission. 
that all the nations would come to the obedience of faith. How is that going to happen? Through local churches established by the gospel and equipped by the gospel. The gospel is central to what makes Christianity Christianity. Christianity without the gospel is something else, eanity. And so, as we gather together as the church, and as we continue to move forward, where do we look to? Where do we look to to help us to grow into? I'm sure we recognize we're not this yet. I'm sure we recognize that we're not celebrating diversity and accepting of each other as we could be. I'm sure we're recognizing that maybe we have been, particularly, I I don't know about you, but I know that many churches across the country and across the world have struggled with unity throughout the lockdown period. Maybe that same thing has started to take grip of our minds and hearts here. I I don't know. I, I haven't heard of anything particularly troubling, and I really hope that that continues to be the case. But maybe just something in our hearts and minds have started to give way to bitterness. We need to watch that, and I'm sure we can all grow in that. How do we do that? We're going to do that through the gospel. The gospel is going to be what establishes us. The gospel is going to be what equips us. And just to be clear, what is the gospel? It's that message which is recorded for us in the prophetic writings, that is, in the pages of the New Testament. So as we gather together and throughout our daily lives, the scriptures which speak of the gospel, are going to be vital for us as we go forward. I pray that we take this message of the book of Romans to heart and that we'd want to strive for the same maturity and unity and diversity. And Paul says the way for us to do that is the way it's always been, through faith in the gospel. Increasing faith and increasing understanding and all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for your grace. Please help us to continue to grow and thrive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus and all he's done for us. May the message of the good news of that Christ is King, that Christ is Lord and Savior of all who put their trust in Him, that He has delivered us from our sins, from our guilt, from our condemnation, from death, from hell, and has brought us into His kingdom, brought us into His family, caused us to be adopted as sons of the Father. Our Father, we pray as we do this, keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, keep us united according to the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.